say I have some sort of allergy things going on. I feel like I'm about to lose my voice. So if I do, I'm going to tag out to Scott. And he's going to come up and finish the message for me. I once worked with a guy who would tell hero stories about himself. He had these outrageous stories about him doing all kinds of Rambo-esque feats of heroism. Some of his stories were merely improbable, and others were just absolutely impossible. And I remember hearing his stories, and, and really what I was most insulted by was that he would think I was stupid enough to believe that these actually happened. But I never said anything. I just listened to him tell his story, said, uh-huh, at the proper moment, oh, you're kidding, wow, that's amazing, and went on about my day. But I worked with a guy named Ed, and Ed, Ed couldn't do that. Ed could not just sit by and listen to this guy's stories and go on. Ed was constantly calling him out on the inconsistencies in his stories, um, asking for names of people who, corro- who could corroborate the stories. And if the guy gave a name, Ed would ask for their number because he was going to call to check on it. He wanted, to, he wanted somebody to testify and to witness that these stories were true. And no matter how much the guy swore his claims were true, he never was able to come up with even one witness to confirm his claims. And without any witnesses to confirm his claims, we never believed any of his stories. A witness that could have confirmed his claims would have changed everything. Anytime someone makes a claim, it requires us to determine whether or not we believe it. And anyone can make any kind of claim that they want to make, because making claims is easy enough to do, but backing up those claims, proving that they are true, that is something entirely different. And one of the best ways to back up any claim is to have somebody who can stand up and say, yes, that is the truth, that is exactly what happened. And the more witnesses there are to a particular's claim, the more likely it is that the claim is true. Now, Jesus made some pretty spectacular claims about himself. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Savior of the world. He claimed to be the final judge. Now, why? Why would anyone believe those claims? How could anyone believe those claims? People can believe those claims because there are witnesses who can confirm that these claims were true. And we're going to look at those witnesses this morning. Open your Bible to John chapter 5. Verse 31 is where we're starting. That is page 813 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. John chapter 5 and verse 31. Jesus says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, yet I do not receive testimony from man. But I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who, you have, uh, the Father himself who has sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice any time nor have seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he, whom he sent you have not believed. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. The title of the message is, The Witnesses to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. God, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. God, we come today with a desire to know you better, a desire to draw closer to Jesus, to be better able to go out and be lights that shine brightly for him. 
And we need you today to help us to take your word and apply it to our lives. We need you to help us to focus on you and lay aside the cares of life. We need you to give us ears to hear and a heart that would understand. That we would truly listen to your word. Father, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit. That he would take your word and he would make it living and active in our lives. That he would convict us where we need convicting. He would challenge us where we need challenging. He would comfort us where we need comforting, and He would change us where we need changing. Father, let Your Spirit work in each one of our lives, guiding us to the place where we ought to be, helping us to see things in our life that need to be different, giving us a greater faith in Jesus, a greater confidence in His, just who He is, Lord. I ask You to fill me with Your Holy Spirit, give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech, help me to speak Your words and Your ways, that You would be glorified in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Anybody can make a claim. The greater the claim, the harder it is to believe. And if one person makes a claim, and there's no witnesses to back it up, that claim will often be seen as spurious at best. Jesus understands that, and that's what he says in verse 31. By witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, he's not saying that the things he said about himself in the previous verses was untrue. What he's saying is, I've made these big claims about myself. Now, if there is no other witness than me to say that what I'm saying is true, now you're going to have a hard time believing me, and you're going to have reason to doubt. And so Jesus then begins to give witnesses, others that testify that he is who he says he is, that he can do what he says he can do. And the purpose of these witnesses is to confirm the claims of Christ so that we can believe the claims of Christ. And that is the main thing to understand today. The witnesses to Christ confirm the claims of Christ so that we will believe in Christ. The witnesses to Christ confirm the claims of Christ so that we can believe in Christ. And in this passage, Jesus gives us five witnesses to him, to the claims that he has made. First is the witness of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 32, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now, the Holy Spirit is not named personally in this particular passage, but I am convinced that the Holy Spirit is the other witness that is spoken of here for several reasons. One of the reasons is when John later goes on to write his first letter, he writes that there are three who bear witness of Jesus, and he lists the Holy Spirit as one of these witnesses. Now, when you read John's letter, you find that most of the time, what John does is he takes concepts from the Gospels, and he expands upon them in his letters. So for John to say that Jesus, or the Holy Spirit as a witness to Christ, would, would be very consistent with the Holy Spirit being the witness that he talked about here. Another thing... Another reason I believe that the Holy Spirit is talking about here is that in previous passage, we saw that Jesus made these claims about himself. And basically what Jesus does is witness. I am the Son of God. I am the giver of life. I am the final judge. So Jesus has witnessed about himself. In a few verses down, we're going to see that the Father has witnessed about Jesus. It would be, it would be strange, to say the least, if Jesus witnessed about who he was, if the Father witnessed about who he was, but the Holy Spirit didn't witness about who he was. Him, the Holy Spirit was the one member of the Trinity that wasn't mentioned here. It would be very strange, considering that in most instances, when this kind of testimony is given, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all take part in the witness. Also, when you read through John's Gospel, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a, a massive theme. John speaks more of the ministry of the Holy Spirit than any other gospel writer. And one of the things that John repeatedly tells us is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to testify and to witness about Jesus. So I believe the other witness that John speaks of here, it is the Holy Spirit. Also, one last thing, 
is that notice the witness here. There, there's another who bears witness of me. That's he still bears witness of me. And I know that his witness, which he witnesses continually, is true. Right now, when John mentions John the Baptist, he mentions that John the Baptist has witnessed. When he mentions God the Father, he mentions that God the Father has witnessed. But when he mentions this witness, this witness is still testifying. This witness is still witnessing to the claims of Jesus. The Holy Spirit here, like Scripture down below, is one that is continually witnessing to Jesus. So this, I believe, is the Holy Spirit. So how does the Holy Spirit witness to the claims of Christ so that we can believe in Christ? Well, here's what the Bible will tell us. And when He has come, that's the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because I do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This is the way the Holy Spirit testifies or witnesses to Christ. Now, he says he convicts. Now, I prefer some translations use the word convince there, which I prefer. Because convict often carries with it with us the idea that it makes us feel bad. And that's not necessarily what the Holy Spirit does. Instead, convince. Convince is, helps us to understand or believe a truth that we've previously not understood or not believed. He convinces us that something is true. Right? That either we didn't know or we didn't believe before. And that is what the Holy Spirit does in witnessing about Jesus. He convinces us of things. And the first thing that He convinces us of is sin. Now, think about this. What causes an unbeliever to become a believer? Right? I mean, what, what works in a person's life to make them make such a drastic shift that they go from not believing in Jesus as the Savior of the world and their Lord and Redeemer to believing that Jesus is the Savior of the world and their Lord and Redeemer? Well, what happens is the Holy Spirit convinces that person of their sin. Right? Not just that there's sin in the world. Not just that there are some things that are right and wrong, but that they themselves, that this person has sinned. Now, most people really don't believe that they've sinned. Right? The average person, if you were to ask them, are you perfect? They would say no. But if you were to ask them, have you sinned? Are you a sinner? They would also say no. So the Holy Spirit, what He does is... He begins to work through the preaching of the word. He begins to work in our heart and to convince us that, yes, indeed, I have sinned. I remember that in my own conversion. I remember the very moment that the truth of Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I remember when I realized I was one of the ones that was meant there. The Holy Spirit convinced me of a truth. I had not previously embraced that I had sinned. But he doesn't stop at just convincing us about sin. Right? He convinces us also about righteousness. And there are two things that the Holy Spirit convinces us of regarding righteousness. The first thing is that we don't have any. You see, a person who just has not believed in Jesus, for the most part, they believe that they're okay. Again, they're not perfect but the idea that they're guilty before God, that, right, that, that the cross demonstrates what their sin deserved. No. Now, the average person just doesn't believe that that's the case. They believe, by and large, they are a fairly good person. Right? And, and the Bible says that people will declare their goodness. You just go out and ask somebody, are you a good person? Yes. Are you a sinner? 
No. People believe they're basically good. So the Holy Spirit first convinces, yes, I've sinned. And once the, the weight of that I have sinned wake, wakes up or, or rises up within me, I then begin to realize that I am guilty. Right, that in the courts of heaven, before the Lord God Almighty, before a holy God, I am guilty of sin. And since I am guilty of sin, I have no righteousness of my own. I'm not basically a good person. I am a guilty sinner. Now, this is the part where a person believes and they recognize what Isaiah said, that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us there. Yes, the Holy Spirit brings us to this place where we, we become bankrupt spiritually. And we know that we are spiritually dead. We know that we have no righteousness of our own. But then he points to Jesus and he says there is a place where you can get righteousness. There is a place where you can be made righteous and it's not of your own. It is Jesus. That because Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again and ascended to the Father, now you can believe in Him and His righteousness can be given to you and you can be righteous. See, the Holy Spirit, He makes us aware of our sin. He makes us aware of our spiritual moral bankruptcy. But then he points us to Jesus as the cure for all of that. And then he convinces us of the judgment to come. And this is, I think, a very important thing. Because, again, the average person, most people just want to believe that, we're, that we are not accountable to any higher being than ourselves. That as long as I basically live a good life, whatever I define as a good life, as long as I'm basically kind, as I define kindness, then I am good to go. But the Holy Spirit convinces us that there is a judgment to come. There is a time where we will stand before a holy God and we will give an account for our lives. And our standards won't matter. It is His standards that will matter. See, and through all of this, the Holy Spirit is pointing us to Jesus. He is doing all of this not to make us feel bad, not to say you're sorry. He is doing all of this so that we will see that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that through Him we can have life and forgiveness and salvation and all the things that God wants to give us. And this is what the Holy Spirit does all the time. This is how believers, unbelievers become believers. The Holy Spirit convinces people, you've sinned. You have no righteousness. You are accountable to God. Righteousness is available through Jesus Christ. And as he does this, he is confirming the claims of Christ so that we will believe in Jesus Christ. First, there is the witness of the Holy Spirit. But then there is the witness of John the Baptist. It says in verse 33, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Now, the witness of John the Baptist is one. That has already happened earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Here's what John's witness was. John saw Jesus coming. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away sin of the world. Right, that, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Really, that, that is the main theme of all that John witnessed and testified to about Jesus. The Lamb of God. 
Jesus being the Lamb of God is one of the greatest images of Christianity that we have about Jesus. And it, it pictures the Old Testament. It goes back to the time of the Exodus. If you're familiar the story of the Exodus, you know that the people of God were slaves in Egypt. They'd been slaves for a long time. God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said, not impressed, not going to do it. So God begins to send a series of plagues on Egypt to, to make them aware of the fact that the gods of Egypt were nothing. The God of the Hebrews, he was God. And it comes to the point where God is going to send the, the big one. Right? The greatest plague of all, the death of the firstborn. And what God is going to do is he's going to go through the entire nation of Egypt. And he is going to kill the firstborn in every household from Pharaoh on the throne to the slaves. And even, even the animals, if I'm remembering the story right. He is going to kill everyone, the firstborn. And, but there is a way out. If you would take a lamb that met certain specifications, and if you were to kill the lamb and take its blood and apply the blood to the doorpost of your house, then the angel that was coming to kill the firstborn would pass over that particular house, and the people in there would be spared. Right? And so the Israelites did that, and they were, they were saved by the blood of the lamb. And that was a picture, that was a, a shadow of Jesus Christ. That through his death, we would be saved. See, we, we've established the Holy Spirit. He deals with us and makes us aware of the fact that we've all sinned. But a part of sin is that sin has a wage. There is a consequence for sin. The wages of sin is death. And, and there is just a, a reality that God will punish sin. And Jesus, as the Lamb of God, he came. So that he could absorb that wrath and that punishment in our place. So that we then would be passed over, so to speak. And we would not suffer the wrath of God. But Jesus would take it in our place. That was really everything Jesus came to do on earth. That's what it was all about. Right? And, and the way that Jesus did this is that Jesus fulfilled the law. Right? When you think about the law... The law was broke up into basically two parts, the Old Testament law. There was the ceremonial law, which was like the sacrificial system. And then there was the moral law. And the moral law would basically be the Ten Commandments and all of the thou shalt nots and thou shalts that flowed out of the Ten Commandments. Now, what Jesus did when he came to earth was he fulfilled both of those perfectly. Now, he fulfilled the moral law by not sinning. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never sinned in thought, word, or deed. He, he kept the, the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. Jesus lived such a perfect life that when it came time to frame him so that he would be executed, the people that came to give false testimony, they told different stories. They couldn't find anybody that would tell what Jesus actually did that broke the law because he never did. So they got people to come and say things. But the people that came and lied, they told different stories. Right? No one could accuse Jesus of breaking the law in any way. He kept the, the moral law perfectly. But not only did he keep the moral law perfectly, he fulfilled the sacrificial law. What Jesus did on the cross was fulfill all that the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. See, the Old Testament sacrifices, what they did was they reminded people that the wages of sin was death. That's, that's why they had to kill stuff. You've sinned. And the atonement for sin is that something has to die. Either you or something else. Now, 
the, the blood of bulls and goats never actually took away sin. It never actually brought about redemption and forgiveness. Instead, it kind of rolled sin back for a year and it made people aware. I mean, think about it. Think about what if every time you sinned, you had to kill something. Right? I mean, think about what that would do to you. Right? Every time, right, you honked the horn in anger. Now I've got to go home and kill a goat now. Cut the blood, you know. Burn. you got to do what? Every time. How aware would you be of the fact that you were a sinner? Oh, very. Right? That's what it did. It never took away sins. It just reminded them they were flawed. And they fell short. And they needed someone else. Well, that's what Jesus was. He was the someone else. He came. And since He lived a perfect life, His death wasn't for His sins. His death was for our sins. And He took our place and He absorbed the wrath that our sins deserve. And now, God will pass over us. And though we have sinned, and though we have fallen short of the glory of God, the wrath of God has been has been taken away. And there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus came to do as the Lamb of God, was to take that punishment that we so richly deserved. And Jesus, that was the testimony that John the Baptist gave. And I like what Jesus said about him. First he said in verse 33, You have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Right? John's testimony, that was the truth. John wasn't overstating the case, not a little bit. Jesus really was the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. His testimony was 100% accurate. He says in verse 34, Yet I do not receive the testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Right? Jesus is saying John gave a testimony, and it was a true one, but John's testimony is not the best testimony. John's testimony is not the final authority. However, I'm reminding you of John's testimony so that you can believe what John said. You can be saved. Right? Jesus is reminding them that everything rises and falls on their view of him. Do they believe he's the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world? They think he's crazy. Do they think he's a teacher or do they think he's the Messiah? Right? What they believe about him, what they think about him, determines whether or not they're saved, whether or not they have life, whether or not they're forgiven. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. And then he says... That John was a, a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice in his light. And basically what he's saying is that John was a light in the darkness that pointed people to Jesus. Because that's all that John did. John just repeatedly preached, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's all he did was point people to the one that was coming, and once Jesus came to the one that was there. He was a light in the darkness pointing people to Jesus so that they could be saved. See, the witness from John about Jesus was that Jesus was the Son of God. That Jesus was the giver of life. The Savior of the world. The final judge. The witness of John confirmed the claims the witness of John confirmed the claims of Christ so that we would believe in Christ. The third testimony is the witness of Jesus' works. Jesus said, but I have a greater witness than John's. The works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works I do bear witness of me. The Father has sent me. See, Jesus, he told some big stories. I mean, Son of God, giver of life, final judge. It's pretty huge. How do you back up a claim like that? 
But you do things that only God could do. You do things that declare to the world, you're not just a guy that's lost his mind. Right? You're not just a teacher. You're not just a prophet. You're something else. And so the works of Jesus that he describes can be broken up into three categories. One, the works that he already finished. Right? By this point in Jesus' ministry, he's already turned water into wine, which is pretty significant. right? I mean, to change the, the whole makeup of something like water to something entirely different, that's pretty amazing. And he healed a lame man, which the story of healing the lame man is what caused all of this discussion that we're having in this particular passage. But then there's the works yet to be done. Right? Jesus has done two neat things, but there's more that he's going to do. Right? He's going to multiply the food to feed the multitude. He's going to take just a, a few fish and a few loaves of bread, and he's going to pray over it, and then he's going to feed thousands of people with that little bitty meal. He's going to calm a storm and make it stop just because he says so. He's going to find a blind man, and he's going to make that blind man see. Now, that one is very significant because there were other people who did miracles in the Old Testament. The, some of the prophets did some amazing miracles. And they didn't, may not have turned water into wine, but they healed lame men. They helped with food. Um, they did things with storms. But nobody in the Old Testament ever caused a blind man to see. And nobody in the New Testament other than Jesus ever caused a blind man to see. This, was the, this is a work that only Jesus Christ did. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead after he's been dead a few days. Pretty significant. And then Jesus himself is going to rise from the dead. They're going to kill him. He's going to be dead for three days. Then he's going to walk out of the tomb victorious over that. And these aren't even all of the miracles that Jesus did. These are just the ones that John records. Each of the other three Gospels record other miracles that Jesus did. But even if, if these were the only ones that Jesus did, that would be pretty significant. I would say someone who could do these things. They've, they've borne witness to their claims. But Jesus does more. But there's, still, there's the works that Jesus still does. There's the spread of the church. I mean, we, we often forget. Let me just think about it. When the Gospel of John ends and the book of Acts begins, there are about 120 believers in Jesus Christ. And they are confined to one city. And yet, somehow the gospel came to Guyman, Oklahoma. And we heard it and were saved. Somehow the gospel came to Pickett Center, Oklahoma. From 120 people in Jerusalem to the furthest reaches of the world. The gospel has gone forth. Now, there are... There are rarely, I mean, there are very few places in the world today where there is not at least some believer proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may only be a few. But you'd be hard-pressed to find any country in the world where there is not a gospel believer telling others about Jesus. Now, how did the gospel get from Jerusalem to Pickett to Gaiman? People went. And they told the story of who Jesus is. And what Jesus did. And they believed. And they were saved. And they told the story. Right? One of the things about the gospel is the gospel did not spread by the sword. Right? Those 120 believers, they did not upturn the world by going places and sticking a knife to somebody's throat and saying, believe or we're going to behead you. 
They went and they said, here's who Jesus is and here's what Jesus did. Believe. And people said, that's amazing. I do believe. The church spread not by force, not by political power, not by being in the majority. The church spread through a supernatural work of the Redeemer that the story was about. Jesus planted the church all over the world. And then Jesus is, is changing lives today. I mean, because everywhere the church goes, lives are changed. Souls are saved. People are made different. I mean, how many of us in here could look at our lives and say, I'm different because of Jesus? I mean, I was thinking about that this week in my life. I'm pretty sure I know who I would be if I wasn't a Christian. And it's not anything like who I am now. Not, not that I would be like a serial killer or anything like that. But naturally, I'm really not a nice person. Deep down in my heart, in my innermost being, I'm really a jerk. And I don't like people all that much a lot of times. I mean, my natural person does not care for people. My desire to help others, my desire to be there, to listen, to care, that is not just an outflow of who I am naturally. That is a complete change in my life from what I was before. I'm not a guy that likes to be up front naturally. I've told you before that when I felt called to preach, it made me physically ill. I mean, I I remember thinking God was calling me to preach, and I could just think about standing up in front of my church at Fort Gibson and talking, and I could feel my stomach churn. And I literally threw up for the first year and a half before I preached. Kelly tells me I shouldn't say throw up, but I did. I threw up, threw up, threw up all the time. Being up front and talking, not not natural. If it was not for Jesus, this is not who I would be. He has changed me completely, as the song we sang said. These are the works of Jesus that testify who He is. He is changing lives all over the world. And the works of Christ, they testify and they confirm the claims of Christ. And they urge us to believe in Christ. The fourth the fourth witness is the witness of of the Father. Jesus says in verse 37, And the Father Himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His form. Do you not have His word biting in you, because of whom He sent you do not believe? God the Father had already testified about Jesus. And this testimony also was something that had happened earlier. Matthew gives a better account of it. Jesus came from Galilee to John at Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now notice, this is what I was talking about earlier, about the, the Trinity all taking part. Jesus is baptized, 
The Father speaks, Holy Spirit descends like a dove. But notice what the Father testifies. This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. So what is the Father testifying? Jesus is the Son of God. He's doing exactly what I want Him to do. Right? John, who was there for that, is going to take Jesus' words, what happened there, Jesus' words here, and when he writes his letter, he's going to say this. He who believes in the Son of God has a witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. Right? God has given a testimony of his Son. And here's the testimony. That there is eternal life, that the life is in the Son, and that he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Right? So what, what testimony does the Father give? The Father testified, Jesus is my Son. In Him is life. And if you want all that I'm offering to the world, you have to first come through Jesus. Right? The witness of the Father, it confirms the claims of Christ and it urges us to believe in Jesus Christ. And then the final witness is the witness of Scripture. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Now, this is like the, the nail in the coffin to those that he's hearing. Those that he's talking to here are the religious leaders who saw themselves as the scholars and theologians of the day. And they made their boast of the knowledge of God's law. And in a lot of ways, you could say that what they had done was they had separated themselves from all normal work so that they could devote themselves wholly to Scripture. Theoretically, that's what a Pharisee was. It was one that had separated themselves from normal activities so they could study the law, do the law, and teach the law to others. So what these people were, these were people that knew what the Bible said. These were people that understood what the Bible meant. But the problem they had, it wasn't in their knowledge. It wasn't in their understanding. It really wasn't even in their faith. They basically believed the Bible. The problem was that they would not obey the Bible. Right? They would not follow the Bible through because, because it pointed them to Jesus. That's what the Bible was urging them to do. That sounds like a big claim. All Scripture speaks of Jesus, considering how much of it was written before he was born on the earth. But this is a, a clear testimony from Scripture. Right? And then from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You see, all of Scripture points us to Jesus. All of Scripture ultimately leads us to Christ. Jesus is the great theme of Scripture. From start to finish, He is the focus and the, the intention of it all. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. Everything in the New Testament either surrounds Jesus or flows out of who He is and what He did or what He's going to do. Everything in the Bible points us to Jesus. It makes us know that we need salvation. It makes us know that Jesus is the Savior that we need. And it makes us know that we must believe in Him. Listen to, to, to a somewhat poetic way that one author illustrated this point. He said, in Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, Jesus is our high priest. In Numbers, Jesus is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. 
In Judges, Jesus is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. First and second Samuel, Jesus is our trusted prophet. Kings and Chronicles, Jesus is our reigning king. In Ezra, Jesus is our faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, Jesus is the rebuilder of the broken down walls of human life. In Esther, Jesus stands in the gap to deliver you from your enemies. In Job, Jesus is our day spring from on high and our ever-living Redeemer. In Psalms, Jesus is the Lord our shepherd. Psalms and Ecclesiastes, Jesus is our wisdom. Song of Solomon, Jesus is the lover of our soul. In Isaiah, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. In Jeremiah, Jesus is the righteous branch. In Lamentations, Jesus is the ever-faithful one on whom you can depend. In Ezekiel, Jesus is the one who assures the dry, dead bones that they will come alive again. In Daniel, Jesus is the fourth man in the burning, fiery furnace. In Hosea, Jesus is the faithful husband, forever married to the backslider. In Joel, Jesus is your refuge, keeping you safe in times of trouble. In Amos, Jesus is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, Jesus is mighty to save. In Jonah, Jesus is your salvation, bringing you back within his will. In Micah, Jesus is the messenger of beautiful, messenger with beautiful feet carrying the gospel. In Nahum, Jesus is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, Jesus is the Holy One. Zephaniah, Jesus is the Savior. Haggai, Jesus is the restorer of the lost heritage of Israel. Zechariah, Jesus is the Lord of hosts. In Malachi, Jesus is the Son of Righteousness, rising with healing in His wings. In Matthew, Jesus is the Messiah. In Mark, Jesus is the Lord who is a servant. In Luke, Jesus is the Son of Man. In John, Jesus is the Son of God. In Acts, Jesus is the Savior of the world. In Romans, Jesus is our justifier. Corinthians, Jesus is our sanctifier. In Galatians, Jesus is the redeemer from the curse of the law. In Ephesians, Jesus is the unsearchable riches of Christ. In Philippians, Jesus is the God who supplies all our needs. In Colossians, Jesus is the Godhead bodily. First and second Thessalonians, Jesus is our soon coming king. First and second Timothy, Jesus is our mediator between God and man. In Titus, Jesus is our faithful pastor. In Philemon, Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. In Hebrews, Jesus is the blood of the everlasting covenant. In James, Jesus is the power behind your faith. First and second Peter, Jesus is the good shepherd who shall soon appear with a crown of glory. First and second and third John, Jesus is everlasting love. In Jude, Jesus is the foundation of your faith. And in Revelation, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The witness of Scripture is that Jesus is who He claims to be. That each of us must believe Him. And that we must receive Him as Lord and Savior. And all of these, it's five different witnesses. They're all saying the same thing. They're all saying that the claims of Christ are true. Jesus is the Son of God, the one and only Savior and the final judge. And these witnesses repeatedly tell us that we must believe in Jesus so that we may be saved. Now, notice what Jesus said to the religious leaders in verse 40. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. They knew the Bible. They understood the Bible. They believed the Bible. They were not willing to obey the Bible. Go to Jesus that they might be saved. The problem that they had then is the same basic problem that many people have today. 
There are likely many in here today who know Scripture. Perhaps you were raised in a Christian home or you've read the Bible a bit for yourself. Either way, you know a bit about the story and the message of the Scriptures. Not only do you know it, but you understand it. You understand the flow of things, how Jesus is spoken of and how the Old Testament points to Him. You probably have a measure of belief in the Bible. You believe there is a God. You believe the Bible is probably true in most things. You have some measure of belief in Jesus. You understand that He died for sins, that probably your sin is included in all of that. But the problem you have is the same problem the religious leaders had. You will not obey the Scripture. That it would lead you to Jesus, that you would call on Jesus and be saved by Jesus. That is the thing that stands between you and all that God wants you to have. That final step is what stands between you and life and salvation. You must make that step. Make it today. Let's stand as our musicians come.